Hope you're in the Word this week. Of course, it's our desire to have you there to facilitate that for you, to model what that looks like here, and then to provide some resources for you to be in the Word daily. There on the back, underneath the Go Ye Into All the World, you'll find a Bible reading trifold that can take you through verse by verse through the Bible in a year. Uh, many uh, here at Berean use it, as do I, for personal Bible study, and so let me encourage you to grab one of those on your way out if you've not been reading the Bible daily. Or if you've just been kind of doing the, let me open my Bible to whatever page it falls open to, and I'll read right there and let the Lord intervene. Let me tell you that the Lord made his word to read. He made it for us to study. He's given every word for us to enrich us, to make us more like his son, to help us understand more of his nature. And as we take our time to be in the word, we also find the holy standard up in front of us all the time that we can be uh, seeing what the Lord requires from us and then conforming ourselves in obedience to those things. So the blessing of reading the word is rich. It is what the Lord designed his word for, and so I encourage you to make that your habit. It's great to be back together in our continued study through 1 Corinthians. Turn in your copy to 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to read from, from verse 1 all the way through verse 13. It's our desire, my desire today, to close out chapter 13 and all God's people said. Amen. And we'll do that. Uh, we've been off a couple of weeks. Uh, as, uh, it just seems like it's been forever since we've been back here, but we had uh, a great update with missionaries, and then we had uh, our men's uh, outreach or men's uh, uh, camp out. Yeah, it was, it was uh, accompanied by Matthew a uh, couple of the days, and so we, we had a great time. And, and those who came and survived Matthew in a tent now have that bragging right from now on. But I think we got about seven inches of rain from Saturday at three in the afternoon till Sunday morning at 5 a.m., just in that period of time. And so it was really great. So people found out if their tents really were waterproof. <laughs> Read verse 1 with me. I'm going to read, If I speak. So that's where we'll be. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I'm nothing. Verse 3, If I give all my possessions to feed the poor and uh, surrender my body to be burned, but do not have love. It profits me nothing. Verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Verse 5. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own. It is not provoked. It does not take into an account a wrong suffered. Verse 6, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. Verse 7, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Verse 9, for we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Verse 10, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Verse 11, when I was a child, I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. Verse 12, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Verse 13, but now faith, hope, love abide these three, but the greatest of these is what, beloved? Love. We've learned a lot in our trip through this pivotal chapter that connects the gifts of the Spirit, starting in chapter 12, to the priorities of the Spirit and the use of the gifts in chapter 14. 
And most of all, the Holy Spirit has desired for us to learn the preeminent place of the spiritual fruit of love in everything that goes on in the church. But we don't study and learn these things in a vacuum. And I would guess that it would just seem to be obvious that a believer's desire would be to live what we learn. And whatever it is that we do for the kingdom, our desire would be that what we do best is our living, right? I mean, we can do a whole lot of things, but we're, I mean, we can give a lot. You can go and serve in a committee. You can be on a board. You can do a lot of things that look spiritual. But really what we want to do is live like the scriptures describe for us to live. Out of darkness and into light does not just describe the spiritual nature of us and the transformation that occurred, but it also describes the actions that follow out of darkness into light. The fruit of the Spirit is really the indicator of spirituality, and I, I, it's really very, very simple and easy to understand. But when it comes right down to it, the way love works and how it acts are really disciplines, if you think about it. And to do those kinds of disciplines takes work to change the way we've always responded. And a close monitoring of our thoughts, our, our commands, and, and then interacting with the word as we see those things vary away from what we see here. That just seems obvious, doesn't it? I mean, as we understand what it is that we're required to do, I tell you this all the time, that God's commands are for us, not for him. So if he tells us this is how love is to act, then by the power of the Holy Spirit, we are interacting that way. And those are really disciplines of life. Those are the ways we, as we look at our responses, as we look at our thoughts, the way we interact with one another then, and we compare it to these standards, we see either we're doing well or we're doing not so well and we need to change. And we desire to see those things evident in our lives and when they are visible then, they alone are evidence of the Spirit's control. That's what we mean when we say spiritual fruit is the indicator of spirituality and not necessarily spiritual gifts. Because spiritual fruit bring personal will and personal desire and emotion and impulse and speech under divine priority. And through time in the word and the empowering of the indwelling Holy Spirit, what ends up happening is they direct the subordinating of our desires and our impulses and our emotions and our speech then over to divine control. That's the whole idea of spiritual fruit. They begin to be produced as the word works its way out through us in our obedience to its commands. And we want, I think it's just obvious, as followers of Christ, to move past shallowness and superficiality and Christianity like it's done now, which is perhaps a mile wide and an inch deep. And I think that as we read this passage, it's a little easier to understand that there's a lot more required than just maybe showing up and teaching a Sunday school or maybe showing up and being on a board or running some ministry. Those things can be done in the flesh, and that's Paul's whole point early on in chapter 13. As he says, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and I don't have love, I'm no more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. I'm irritating, Paul says. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and I, and I have all faith, so all of those in the superlative, and I can remove mountains but don't have love, I'm nothing. And I can give all my possessions, not just some of them, I can give all of them away and feed the poor. And I can surrender my body to martyrdom for whatever cause that may be. But without love, it accomplishes zero. 
So I think we can see that it's easy, it's easier to do the work of the ministry than it is to do it like it's supposed to be done, right? And so it's the attitude and what's going on in the heart and the motivation for the ministry that require a whole lot more of time in the Word. So that when we get to the BMC judgment, we find that we've built with gold, silver, and costly stone and not with wood, hay, and straw, okay? And we've connected those before, so I won't go through that anymore. But this study in 1 Corinthians 13 is a place that can lead us from an undisciplined life and past shallowness and past superficiality to one where we're useful for the master's work. And one of the great joys of this study is to see those things in your life. As we go through, you begin to see those things or perhaps you identify the motivations for why you're doing what you're doing because they're not the kinds of things that unbelievers do. And as we said several times, only the people who have incorporated the first spiritual fruit of love can actually accomplish anything for the kingdom or build anything that will last for the beam of seat judgment. Salvation is not some, and we've said this before, not just some emotional activity that happens sometime in the past. The way you really know that you're saved is by your activity. In other words, the salvation that's inside of you is at work through your obedience to the commands of Scripture, which makes it visible on the outside of you. So look at your life and see what's there. And that's the whole point of the study. See, we're not studying this in a vacuum. The actions of love should be showing up in how you act. Love is patient. Love is kind. It rejoices with truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. And equally, what love doesn't do shouldn't be there. Love isn't jealous. Love doesn't brag. Love isn't arrogant. Love doesn't act unbecomingly. Love doesn't seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love doesn't take into account a wrong suffered. It doesn't hold, in other words, a history lesson of everything someone's ever done to you that you felt was bad. Uh, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. So you just look and you see what, what's being revealed in your life. And you can understand to the extent that love, this fruit of the Spirit, is active. So as a believer, if you're able to rightly evaluate yourself, you may not see everything there that you'd like to see there. But there certainly should be some of these attributes of love there, and you are continually disciplining yourself as you read the Word to see more. Because as you're in the Word, as you respond or react in some way that isn't according to love, the Holy Spirit will be speaking to your heart, won't He? That's how that works. The more you're in the Word and the more you react in some way that is not consistent with what you see, the Holy Spirit then speaks to your heart and you say, yeah, uh, that's correct. That's not what I'm supposed to be doing. And you ask for forgiveness from the Lord and perhaps for, from someone else and you move forward in a different vein. And so perhaps there's not everything you may like to see there, but certainly there should be some of the attributes of love there and then you want to discipline yourself to see more. And above all things, if you're a believer, and here's the thing, it should be, and this is how it's, it, it's very, it's, it's impossible to know, for me to know how you hook up with this or for you to know how I hook up with this, but here's the thing. As a believer, it should be the deepest desire of your heart to have those things there. See, that's how we, we don't know that about each other, do we? But that really is the underlying issue, isn't it? That's why we seek the word. That's why every day we say, I need to be in the word first, or I need to close out my day with the word, or right at my lunchtime, I need to have the word because we need this. And it's my deepest desire and yours to see these things here. 
and see the attributes of love and the fruit of the Spirit evident in our life, which becomes clear as we evaluate it compared to 1 Corinthians 13. Now, so far we've seen 16 attributes of love that are character traits of the Spirit-controlled person. 16 things that by discipline, as we just got through talking about, through the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit, have become or will become the daily actions of your life and the reactions of your life. And the concern here, of course, is that we lose, and I'm just going to switch it, the trees for the forest. Obviously, the list is long. But as believers, I'm sure there are many of these things that are present in your life to some degree. We don't want to lose the individual things because we see this big list of 16 things. You're just like, wow, that's really overwhelming. How can I live like that? And as we said before, it's not possible for you to pull that out of your hat. If you've been grouchy and nasty and the way you react to people is not with love and all of that stuff on a habit of a regular basis, tonight you're not going to be able to say, well, tomorrow I'm loving everybody. It's just not going to come out that way. It's going to have to be formed by your time in the Word and the discipline it's going to take to say and, the, and really being very transparent with yourself is that I'm not where I need to be. And these things need to change. And the way I've reacted up till now, and it doesn't matter how old you are, it doesn't make it any better, all right? Like Cal Ripken, you can repeat a mistake a thousand times, it's still a mistake at the end. You just need to make sure that as you see how you're reacting, that you begin to see the Word of God at work in your life, and then go forward with these changes. And we can certainly trust the Holy Spirit to bring that to your attention, the things that are absent. And they'll resonate with you as then He brings them to your mind by way of opportunity. Now, because it's been a few weeks since we looked at our passage, beginning in verse 8, Paul turns his attention here back to the use of spiritual gifts. Up until verse 8, he's been talking about these attributes of love that have to be there and what they're going to look like. Now, he's switching gears again because he's going to move back into chapter 14, and he's going to, be able to, he's going to begin to talk about the priorities of the Spirit, what's supposed to happen in the church, and how that's supposed to be executed as the church service meets. Of course, we've been here since chapter 11, where Paul's been beginning to talk about what it looks like in the church, the activities that go on in the church. So Paul's changing gears. He's given this base for us to stand on. What all these things have to function through is love. And then he's going to turn his attention back now to the use of spiritual gifts. And remembering that spiritual gifts are not a sign of spirituality, but spiritual fruit is a sign of spirituality, which is why Paul took this time to, to bring it to the forefront. And the spiritual fruit of love is the foundation on which the spiritual gifts operate. But the Corinthian church had a tendency to make a big deal out of showy gifts, thinking that somehow the showy gifts were really the sign of spirituality, which prompted this whole letter to begin with, because some in the church were saying, hey, there's a few things going on here in the church. I'm not sure that's spiritual. And so I'm going to write Paul, or some of us are going on a trip. We're going to stop Paul, and we're going to ask him, how do we identify what's really spiritual and what's just really be done and being done in the flesh? And so Paul then began to respond through this letter to answer some of those questions. So Paul does this then with some comparison between the gifts, of love, gifts and love as he moves back into this idea of spiritual gifts. And Paul gives them a great overview. Gifts are just transitory. Love never ends. So if you're going to be concerned about something, be concerned about what never ends. Now, this first part of verse 8, it says this, love never fails. But if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. Look there if you would in your copy of God's Word. The first part is the key to understanding all the other six verses. It has to do with becoming inadequate to a task. Love, then, is never inadequate to the task. And from the positive, love will always be sufficient. So the idea here is that Paul gets this sufficiency of love up then as the standard over and against 
the impermanence and the insufficiency of spiritual gifts. So he just puts them in the right priority. Love is the most important. And then all these other spiritual gifts, even though you've exalted them way above everything else, they are not as important as the spiritual, as spiritual fruit of love. Love will always be sufficient. Now we saw with the verb will be done away that the tense voice and mood indicate something is going to come along and cause the spiritual gift of prophecy to stop. And again, the comparison is to love, which will not stop and won't come to an end. Prophecy is not eternal. Prophecy, which is passing on or reiterating the words of God, literally means to foretell, is going to come to an end. Something's going to come along and end it. Now the last part of verse 8, we see the same verb construction in the passage. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. Love is permanent, prophecy and knowledge not permanent. And again, the verb form means same way. Something was going to come along, cause the spiritual gift of knowledge to stop. Knowledge is that spiritual gift to a believer so that they may understand the facts of Scripture, know the truths of Scripture. The ability, of course, to articulate that clearly is all part of that spiritual gift of knowledge. Now, we looked at the middle phrase of verse 8, and it's different, and why that is important. Now, if you need all the background of these spiritual gifts and all that, we're not going to go through that today. That's all online, reinjourney.org. You can catch up on that on, sermon, on the sermon series we're in currently. And you can, you can catch up on temporary gifts and, and permanent edifying gifts and all those things that we talked about. Now, middle of verse 8, it's different. This is why it's important. Love is eternal. Prophecy and knowledge have an end coming, but not yet. But if there are tongues, Paul says, they will cease. Now, again, love is permanent. Tongues not permanent. Tongues, that's the language or dialect used by a particular people, distinct from that of other nations. It is the true spiritual gift Paul's talking about here. The ability to speak a known foreign language, unknown to the speaker, known to the hearer, and the corresponding gift, of course, with another group of believers, a translation without prior study. So, Paul says, tongues will cease, and it's in the future middle indicative, Greek verb, pausontai. What we saw there just indicates that instead of something coming along in the future and putting an end to the spiritual gift of tongues, tongues ends on its own. So, in the future, still to come, Paul is teaching the Corinthians that this is going to happen, still coming. The middle voice just means the subject will bring an end to itself. It's reflexive. Tongues gonna, is going to stop on its own. As opposed to prophecy and knowledge, which something's going to come along and end them, tongues will cease on its own. Nothing comes along and stops it. And then the indicative mood just means that this will be the actual reality of that future time. Now, it's obvious, and I think it's important here to point out, that Paul doesn't mention tongues again until chapter 14. And it appears that the reason that is is because they'll cease on their own. It's just going to stop. And we looked at all of this in the past in a very extensive background here last time, why we teach that, that the sign gifts did indeed cease. And they ceased towards the close of the first century. We looked at that in the very last time we were together. There's a lot of background there, and you can catch up on that if you didn't have it if you weren't here when we went through it. Now, look, go, go back to verse 8, and, and we're going to close out chapter 13. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. So love is eternal. Prophecy, knowledge, and tongues are temporary. Now look at verse 9. Paul says, for we know in part and we prophesy in part. And that is obviously speaking about the spiritual gifts of knowledge and prophecy. And even as great as those gifts are, Paul presents them in the superlative in 1 Corinthians 13, 2. He says this, if I have... Uh, the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith 
so I can remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. So when it comes right down to it, Paul's carried along by the Holy Spirit here. In verse 9, he says, we know in part and prophesy in part. So even at its best, even at its fullest, I know all mysteries and all knowledge, even have all faith, if, even those things at its best, verse 9 says, we know in part and we prophesy in part. Love is sufficient for all situations, but our knowledge and prophecy are only partially sufficient. And I don't think that's any news to any Bible teacher, that we only have partial. We only have partial understanding, partial knowledge of the things that we need to know. Now, a couple of illustrations of that because it carries us right into our study today. Romans chapter 11, verse 33, Paul says this, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, unfathomable are his ways, for who has known the mind of the Lord or who has become his counselor? When it comes right down to it, the spiritual gifts of knowledge, that's understanding the facts, and reiteration, that's speaking forth the truths of God, that's prophecy, are insufficient to capture God's judgments and his ways, according to Paul. We don't have the sufficiency in our minds now to do that. Psalm 139.1, very clear. O Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You have known when I sit down, when I rise up. You understand my thoughts from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down, and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, Lord, you know it. You have enclosed me behind and before you and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain to it. Even that small fraction of the knowledge of God and his ability to know you and know you clearly and know the words you're going to speak before you speak them, even that knowledge, according to the psalmist, is too wonderful and too high and we can't attain unto it. It's partial. We understand part of that, not all of it. Psalm 40, verse 5, Many, O Lord, my God, are the wonders which you have done. And your thoughts towards us, there is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. So even in this very small fraction of the knowledge of God, as it deals with the wonders which he's done and his thoughts towards us, even articulating those things, according to the psalmist, they are too numerous to count. We have partial ability. We don't have full ability. We could go on and on, but it's not news to us, okay? As you read the Bible, and perhaps you've met, read through it many, many times, cover to cover, as you read through new, there's always new things, isn't there? You're like, man, I wish I could understand that better. You research and you get a better grasp on it, and then next year you're in that spot about the same time of year. You're like, I still, need, I still don't grasp all of that. It's not coming to me right away. All the things that I need to understand about the nature of God here in this particular case. So this is not news to us. So that prophecy and knowledge are part. We know in part. We prophesy in part. That's not news to us. So when we desire to catalog all of our knowledge, all of, our, all of the attributes of God, and to teach them, they're only partial, they're insufficient to do the job, and the reason why they're insufficient and partial, obviously, is because we don't have all the information. Paul says the, that very thing, actually, in 1 Corinthians 13, 12. He says, now I know in part. So, as we observed, it's just obvious to us all, then, verse 9, for we know in part and prophesy in part, verse 10, now look at that, in your copy of God's Word, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Now, done away, same verb we've used before, kartorgeo, obviously speaking of these two gifts, they're going to be done away, something's going to come along and put an end to them. So it's very consistent now, Paul has. He hasn't spoken of tongues again because they ceased on their own. We saw last time where they ceased. 
as we looked even just at Paul's writings and the time of Paul's writings, chronologically we see him not mentioning it anymore at a certain point. And so there's a number of other arguments. You can go through them again online. Now, so these two gifts, though, are still in play as Paul's talking to the Corinthian church. He's looking for a future time where something's going to come along and put him to an end. And those, that thing is the perfect, okay? Tatelios, just referring to an actual thing. It's likely referring to a time period. It's used 19 times in the New Testament. It can mean a full age. It can mean brought to its end. It can mean, uh, and that goes very well with our understanding. In fact, that's how we've interpreted it here. It can mean finished. It can obviously mean wanting nothing necessary to completeness. That's another way to understand the perfect. It conveys the idea of a destined end or an aim. It really points to God's plan very clearly. The idea is when the consummation is reached, all that's partial will be stopped. That's the idea. So a lot of ways that we can understand that, but that perfect thing is the key thing. So when is it? Love never fails. It's never going to fall short. It's always going to be with us. Spiritual gifts of tongues stopped on its own. Prophecy and knowledge are waiting for the perfect thing to come. Now, there are a couple of theories uh, that uh, have to do with the perfect thing, and I'm going to go through them very quickly. They'll just be obvious to you, I think, as we um, look at them. They're not hard to identify. Each of these theories coincides with an important time period. So you can copy these in your notes if this is important to you, or you're certainly welcome to just kind of watch and see uh, how that all works. So the completion of the scriptures, that's been put out. Okay, that's the perfect thing. That's what we're waiting for, to come, for it to come along and stop prophecy and stop knowledge. So in other words, the perfect thing has already come. So then for us, the gifts of prophecy and knowledge then have already ceased. There's a few problems with that view, as you may already imagine. The perfect thing was the scriptures, if that's the case, then there is no spiritual gift of teaching and proclaiming the scriptures going on now. Now, to keep you from insulting me and saying that's exactly the case of what's going on here at church, okay? I'll just skip on. <laughs> skip on. Uh, so in other words, what I'm saying is there's no spirit-empowered knowledge being shared to the church, and that would apply from the close of the first century, and then, of course, the church recognized the official list of authoritative books by the end of the fourth century, but we would understand that it would have closed in the first century from there until forever. It would have stopped, okay? Now, that means with this view, they're not active in the church age now, and they wouldn't be active in the tribulation to follow or the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign of Christ, or the eternal state. And if you remember that the gift of prophecy is primarily the gift of reiteration, and we can see from experience that the gifts are still active, and we can certainly see that from Scripture, and that helps our other points, of course, but if you have prophecy and knowledge going on in the tribulation, uh, you're going to have it going on in the kingdom, uh, then obviously that can't be the case. The, the closing of Scripture or the completion of the Scriptures can't be the perfect thing, or doesn't appear to be the perfect thing. Another theory is the catching away of the church. The catching away of the church. So in other words, the perfect thing is when the church reaches her maturity and she's caught away. Now, if you think about one of the definitions for the perfect thing, that certainly would, that would apply. You could say, okay, well, the church has reached its maturity. The fullness of the church has been brought to a close and she's been translated to heaven. And so that brings then prophecy and knowledge to a close as well. And that view has merit because tatelios can mean maturity. But again, there's an obvious problem with this theory. Immediately after the rapture is the tribulation of the world. And in the tribulation, the scriptures indicate that those gifts will still be operating. 
just a few examples to remind you, because if you were with us in a Revelation study, this is not news for you, but we saw from our study in Revelation that during this time, there will be a huge harvest of souls as a result of the teaching of whom, beloved? The 144,000 redeemed Jews. They are going to go out across the entire face of the world, and they are going to be teaching, and they're going to be reiterating the word of God, and many, many millions will be coming into the kingdom. And that's Revelation 7. But these are Jews. They're redeemed. And after the rapture of the church, they begin their ministry. And they are sealed, and they are really uh, bulletproof until the, the time the Lord is done with them. And they just go out, and they just make sure that the gospel is clear, and it is the Lord at work because he's not willing any parish, even in the tribulation time. He will give out the gospel, and there will be many responding. So obviously teaching is going on. Obviously knowledge is going on. Obviously a reiteration is going on. So that prophecy and that teaching is still happening. In Revelation 11, if you remember, there's two prophets that are going to come. They're called the two witnesses. And what are they going to do? I mean, the entire time through the tribulation, for that at least one half of the tribulation, they are going to be prophesying. They're going to be reiterating God's word. They're going to be teaching. And there will be a reception of that knowledge, and many, many will turn and come to faith. And so it would appear that the rapture can't be the perfect thing because the gifts are still being used during the tribulation period. And as according to our passage of 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect thing comes, those two things will cease. Okay? Now, I don't want to belabor the point here, so we're almost done. Another theory, millennial reign of Christ. The millennial reign of Christ so in other words, during the thousand-year physical reign of Christ on the earth, which follows the tribulation period, that would constitute then, in this theory, the perfect thing so that this is what Paul must be talking about. But again, I think there's, there's an obvious problem with the theory because immediately after the tribulation is this second coming of Christ, and Scripture seems to indicate a wonderful time of teaching that will occur. Perhaps you haven't heard, thought about this, and if you weren't with us in our Revelation study, I'll just give you a really quick review here. But Micah chapter 4, verse 2 seems to talk about this period. It states this. Many nations will come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, that he, of course, speaking of Jesus at that point, may teach us about his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For from Zion will go forth the law, even the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, it appears that during this time period, people are going to come to Jerusalem. And we understand that it seems indeed to be the case. And as we study the Old Testament and we see uh, these two advents of Christ, they're kind of wedded together in the Old Testament. But as we see the New Testament, it helps us separate the things out. In other words, the prophets in the Old Testament didn't understand the two different times Christ was going to be here. They just kind of, when he, they write, they just kind of write them all together. But we understand what's going to happen when he comes the first time, and we understand what we, what's going to happen when he comes the second time because we have further revelation from the New Testament. But the bottom line is this. Christ is going to come. He's going to rule in, in Jerusalem. The nations are going to be required during the thousand-year reign of Christ to come and celebrate the feasts. And, and the scripture tells us if they don't, God will withhold rain from their land, and there'll be some, some things that will happen to them to teach them to obey. So there's some teaching that's going to be going on. But it's not just Jesus who's going to be teaching. Because you could say, well, you know, gifts of you know, uh, knowledge and, and, uh, and prophecy have ceased because Jesus is the one who's doing it. But that's not the case. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, and I think Micah is really quoting some of Isaiah because you'll see some similar uh, passages here. But Isaiah 2, 2, and 3 says this. Now, talking about the same time period, now it will come about that in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. Verse 3, and many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways 
and that we may walk in his paths, for the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now, again, some teaching going on, some reiteration going on, and from there going out to the nations. Now, that doesn't seem to fit into history. So in other words, that hasn't already happened. There's been no time when this has been the case. It doesn't fit in the, to the tribulation time because Jesus isn't ruling in Jerusalem. It seems to be speaking about the millennial kingdom. Now, Isaiah chapter six, verse, Isaiah chapter 11, verses six through nine, really seem to be speaking about that same time period. And you're probably familiar with this passage. This will be one you've probably read or seen uh, uh, somewhere. And verse six says, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and, and the fatling together and the little boy will lead them. Verse seven, and the cow and the bear will graze and their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. Verse eight, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. So just a time of, of unprecedented peace when Christ is ruling in Jerusalem and things as we've known it, the animal kingdom, that kind of show that will be done, right? Because there won't be any you know, leopards chasing down the zebra and you're like, oh, I don't want to watch this and all of that. That's not going to happen anymore, okay? So the nursing child's going to play by the hole of the cobra, the weaned child with his hand in the viper's den. Verse nine, they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth, catch this, will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the water covers the sea. So the knowledge of the Lord is going out throughout the whole earth. Now we're talking about a very broad expanse of knowledge going out where all the nations live. Okay, not just in Jerusalem, but everywhere. The way everything is set up then during this time period seems to be centered around teaching and knowledge and reiteration. Maybe that is part of what you and I get to do because there's some things that we have to do and we're going to be ruling and, and reigning with Christ and perhaps that's some of the things that you and I get to do. Maybe it, it will be the purview of, of his restored people of which we caught a little glimpse during the tribulation time and the 144,000 maybe uh, the Jews will lead that I don't, it's not very clear exactly what we'll be doing except that we will be doing something. But the kingdom will be about the knowledge of the Lord that's the point. And remember as you think about the thousand year reign of Christ, redeemed people from every nation will come into this kingdom from the tribulation period without having died. And we looked at that very clearly when we studied Revelation. Just think about it. You get to the end of the tribulation period. You have judgment of sheep and goats. You have those who were alive at the end of the tribulation, who were redeemed, will move into the thousand-year reign of Christ, and they will not have died. So that's a pretty neat thing to think about. I mean, you wouldn't want to go through the tribulation to experience it because you probably wouldn't make it to the end because only a quarter of the people... Uh, who were on the earth at the time the tribulation started will still make it to the end. So it's going to be pretty uh, hard uh, uh, for you to get to the end to see this. But the bottom line is this. The kingdom will be about the knowledge of the Lord. And in this tribulation period to the thousand year reign of Christ, people will come alive. And they will have children. And those children will need to come to trust Christ as their Savior. And that's hard to believe, isn't it? Because Christ will be reigning in Jerusalem, but it will still be required. How do I know that? Well, we can look at Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3. And that seems a strange thing to think about with Jesus there in Jerusalem, but it's true nonetheless. Isaiah 12, 3 says this. This is a great study if you ever get interested in studying the thousand-year reign of Christ. There are so many passages. You just kind of, kind of pick them out. You say, oh, that doesn't seem to go with what we're talking about. The prophet will go through talking about some things of his current time. And the next thing you know, he's talking about something that's not of his current time. You're like, oh, great. Copy that down. So that's, that's important. Now, Verse 3 says, therefore, this is during the thousand-year reign of Christ, therefore you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. What's that mean? 
If you're drawing water from the springs of salvation, then somebody's getting... Are you asleep? Somebody's getting saved, right? If you're drawing water from the springs of salvation in the thousand-year reign of Christ, somebody's child is coming to faith. Now, we understand in other passages of Scripture that if a child dies before the age of 100, he will have been considered cursed. He probably didn't come to faith and rejected Christ, even though he reigns in Jerusalem. Now, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Okay, that, that people will reject the authority of Christ because at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, there's going to be enough people on the earth who rejected the authority of Christ ruling in Jerusalem to cause a huge judgment, which will be over in probably half some blink I, that will fall on those who have rebelled. But the bottom line is this. Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation, and in that day you will say, give thanks to the Lord, call on his name, mark this, make known his deeds among the peoples, make them remember that his name is exalted, verse 5, and praise the Lord in song, for he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. Cry aloud. And shout for joy, O inhabitant of Zion, for great in your midst is the Holy One of Israel. Somehow that got messed up, but um, that's the wording, Holy One of Israel. Now, so it appears that even with Jesus dwelling and ruling from Jerusalem, there'll be much teaching and prophecy and reiteration, and people will be coming to faith who've come into the thousand-year reign alive. Because his deeds are to be made known, and people are being told to make his deeds known. Because they're to remember that his name is exalted. And how will they do that? They're going to re reiterate his commands and they're going to reiterate his deeds and his deliverance and his salvation to a new generation and they're going to hear it and there's a command that's gone out for that to happen. And Alex, during the millennial reign of Christ, there's going to be worship leaders and because theologically sound music works as a vehicle for teaching and prophesying and we understand that here. So... The song leaders are going to write songs and they're going to remind people, as we just saw, he has done excellent things. Let this be known throughout the earth. And it, so this is going on. Now, just one more, because I don't want to, I don't want to um, belabor the point. Just, this was as more inferred by comparison. And you can see it in Jeremiah 23. And this is, uh, Jeremiah speaks before the time of the millennial reign of Christ. And he says this, he says, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pastor. The Lord speaking to Israel, there are shepherds who are supposed to be watching over the flock, declares the Lord. Now, how does a shepherd destroy and scatter the sheep? Well, he teaches false doctrine, he prophesies falsely, he says things the Lord has not said. That's how sheep get scattered. That's how it's always been. That's how it was in Israel. You have prophets who are not telling what the Lord has said. You've got people who are not speaking, uh, those who are over the Israel, not speaking the things that they're supposed to speak. So before the millennial reign now, catch the timeline. Jeremiah lets us know God's plan. In verse 2, he says, Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who are tending my, my people, you have scattered my flock, driven them away, and have not attended to them. Behold, I'm about to attend to you for the evil of your deeds, declares the Lord. Then catch this. In the millennial reign, God says, Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock. So now we have a personal involvement. The Lord is doing this. And all the countries where they ha I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture and they will be fruitful and multiply. Verse 4, and I will also raise up shepherds over them and they will tend them and they will not be afraid any longer nor be terrified nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Now, just pause right there and think about this. As you thought about what it looks like to not tend correctly, how does a shepherd tend the flock of God? Well, he teaches in the word of God. He reiterates the things that God has said and does that faithfully without adding anything else. And that appears to be going on all around the world because if we compare the other passages we looked at, 
all around the world during this time. The nations will come to Jerusalem, celebrate the feasts. How will they learn about the feasts? Well, teachers and shepherds and reiteration and all of that stuff is going to be going on during this thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, I've said that to say I don't think it can be categorical because we know in part and we prophesy in part, right? So it appears, though, from these passages that the Holy Spirit's gifts of prophecy and knowledge have not been stopped all the way through the thousand-year reign of Christ. If we understand words to be, have their plain meaning, and the knowledge of the Lord is going to go out, and there's commands to go out and make known the deeds of the Lord and all that stuff, that's going to be happening. All the way through the millennial reign of Christ. But the argument becomes stronger for the next stop on the prophetic timetable when we read through the rest of the passage. So where does that leave us as we think about the perfect thing that's going to come along and bring an end to the spiritual gifts of prophecy and knowledge? Well, it would appear to be that it would indicate heaven or the eternal state. That Paul's speaking of here. The rest of the passage seems to support that theory, and we'll look at it right now and just kind of close our time out. Look at verse 9. For we know in part, we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. And the eternal state is the perfect state. All rebellion, all sinfulness, that's all been dealt with by the time we get to the perfect state. Even in the thousand-year reign of Christ, we have rebellion, don't we? A child that's reaches the age of a hundred, doesn't reach the age of a hundred and dies, and we thought of cursed. There's always going to be some rebellion. Even in the thousand-year reign of Christ, with Christ on the throne in Jerusalem, some are going to rebel. Enough are going to rebel that at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ, there's going to, God is going to come and, and uh, crush that rebellion and set up the eternal state. So, but in the perfect in this eternal state, that is the perfect state. All that rebellion, all the sinfulness has all been dealt with. Until that time, teaching and prophecy is necessary. Why? To help us know the Lord. But when the eternal state comes and all the saints have been glorified, then the partial understanding and the partial teaching will all be brought to an end. And then Paul illustrates that concept of partial a little bit as he talks about the human life. Look at verse 11. So now we have this, we have this baseline. I think we can move right through and you'll kind of, kind of put it all together. Verse 11 says this. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think like a child, reason like a child, when I became a man, I did away with childish things. Now, I've read that passage a hundred times, and I thought, why is that in the middle there? You know, and it always gets, you know, it always gets messed up like, you know, you know, don't drink milk anymore, just drink coffee or whatever, you know, you're a man, put away childish things, whatever. It's, it doesn't have anything to do with that. I think this is the important thing, okay? It's natural enough for a child to act like a child, as Paul points out from his own experience. But once, once again, we have this did away with, that's katargeo. And now this is, the, this is the fourth differing translation of this verb in four places, okay? And it is perfect, active, indicative. So perfect in this respect means it just indicates that he's stopping a child at a specific time in the past with continuing results. Active means Paul brought his childish speech, thought, and reasoning to a close. He participated in that. And indicative just means that that is the actual reality of Paul's life. Now, let's put that together. It's an important illustration because Paul, catch this, Paul began at a point in time in the past to exercise the functions of adulthood with a purpose. And he actively put childish ways behind us. Now, if you've raised children, you know that some of them do that earlier than others. They just decide they're going to be an adult now. And they just stop doing all the little childish things they used to do. It's kind of a sad thing for parents because you kind of enjoy the childish stuff, but also it's kind of cool because they want to be an adult. You can kind of see it just a differentiation, just at a certain point in their life, they just decided, now all of a sudden, this is just, this is a superficial thing, all of a sudden they've decided, 
they want their hair to look nice and buttoning their shirt in the wrong place is not cool anymore and they need to make sure that they match and you know those are things that are all on the outside but it is those are all things that you begin to oh he's changing you know and he doesn't talk like he used to talk and he changes how he addresses you you know and you don't get hugs anymore you know that kind of stuff or too much unless you chase them down and grab them you know but we understand how that works if we have children and paul's just making the illustration clear in this passage and i'll show you why he chose to actively put childish ways behind us and there was a point in time because he used to the perfect there was a point in time that it happened and he chose the verb and it indicates a determination on his part he wouldn't be ruled by childish attitudes anymore the tense is perfect it just shows he put away childish things with decision with finality it was important it happened and as an important illustration it indicates that there will come a time when that which is partial that which is childish that which is temporary god will put away with finality because some believe that okay the gifts are going to start and then they're going to stop and then they're going to start and but that doesn't seem you'd really have a difficult time without the illustration you may make a case it'd be sketchy but you could make a case but with that illustration it's very difficult to say okay they're going to start and then they're going to stop and then they're going to start again because paul uses this illustration and says in the perfect at a time in the past i put away childish things and i went on as an adult and i'm not going back which is implied as a as a child and i'm not going to start doing childish things again so tongues was part of the temporary partial childish it stopped on its own prophecy and knowledge are also temporary they're partial they're childish and they'll be stopped when the perfect comes and that's the eternal state verse 12 says this for now we see in a mirror dimly but then face to face now again i think this is really helps to illustrate the eternal state for us okay mirrors in the first century were polished metal and even a high-end polished metal mirror has some problems doesn't it because it depends on how flat the, the metal is to begin with if you can polish it up and corinth was famous for its mirrors but a mirror of polished metal, the reflection would not always be very clear. And over time, certainly, it could get even more cloudy. So mirrors always distort to some extent. Uh, left and right are reversed. You know, you know how it is. You go to the fun house at the fair. You know, they always have that house of mirrors. And, and uh, a few of them seriously distort your image. And so mirrors do that. And Paul uses a mirror as an illustration. It, but it's not that we can't see anything. It, it's not saying that, you know, what we see is going to be incorrect or heresy. It's not saying that. It's just saying it's not completely clear for us. But what mirrors show are limited by their size. It isn't a direct image. Paul defines what we, what we see here of the Lord. We see it dimly. So he says we see in a mirror dimly. I enigma. That's a great noun from the, from the Greek, and I, you can tell what word we get from it. We get our word enigma from it. Now, Paul says what we understand from what we see is sometimes a puzzle. Sometimes it's a riddle. Sometimes it's indistinct. Our sight of eternal things is a little slightly distorted. We don't understand all of it. We can't put it all together perfectly because we don't get that opportunity to do that yet. But then he says what? Now we see in the mirror dimly, but then face to face. When is that? When the perfect comes in the eternal state. Let me ask you a question. Can you see the Lord face to face in his word? You can't even see Jesus face to face in his word, can you? Let alone the Lord on high. We can't see it perfectly, can we? I mean, we get a picture, but we don't see face to face, do we? Here's the thing. Will we know all the things of the eternal state in the tribulation 
or the millennial reign of Christ? No, because there's still sin on the earth. There's still problems going on. There's still judgment happening, even at the end of the thousand-year reign of Christ. All through that thousand-year reign, some rebellion. There's always going to be some distortion. What exactly, in the thousand-year reign of Christ, you'll be ruling, you'll have a perfect mind and understand these things um, and understand that there's going to be rebellion and, and that'll be easier for you to put together. But those on earth, are they going to be able to grasp all of that? What's going to happen at the end? How will the eternal state differ from the thousand-year reign of Christ where Christ is on the throne? No, it won't be clear. It won't be revealed yet, but someday it will be face-to-face. -face. So Paul says we see in enigmati. Dif we see dimly now. But then Paul says it'll be face-to-face. -face. Now, he doesn't define then, and he doesn't say who we will see face-to-face, -face, but he doesn't have to do either of them, does he? Because you already understand what he's talking about. Then face-to-face -face is as clear as it could possibly be. If we see dimly, but then face-to-face, -face, we, we understand who face-to-face -face, and we understand when face-to-face. -face. So, as was seen, then with knowing, look at the last part of that verse. Now I know in part, then I be, then I will know full, uh, then will know fully just as I also have been fully known. He already said that knowledge is partial and so is prophecy. But then that which is perfect has come, which appears to be the eternal state, the Holy Spirit won't need to be active with the gifts of knowledge and prophecy because just as you have always been known by God, the knowledge that God has of you, in other words, is not something growing and becoming more and more perfect. God has that perfect knowledge of you already. He's not learning about you like, oh, I didn't. He's not watching you saying, oh, I didn't know he was going to do that. You know, hey, that was pretty good. I, I didn't expect that. God's never surprised. He has full knowledge of you. Okay. God knows you through and through with a knowledge that's perfect and complete. So now I know in part, but then I will know fully. And that's the verb epignosco, future, middle, indicative. And this is important. Future, just like it sounds, an anticipation of events still to come. Middle, the subject, you remember this, the subject performs an action upon himself or herself. It's reflexive. And an indicative is just the reality of the future time. So, now I know in part, but then I will know fully. Future, middle, indicative. And the idea here is that, catch this, you will participate in the process to become thoroughly acquainted with full knowledge. That's something you're going to be participating in on yourself with the mind that's able to, to grasp those things. You will be part, I'll say it a different way, of the gained perception of clear sight. You get to be a part of that in the eternal state. And that is really a cool piece of information that gives us some insight into the eternal state, just the way Paul expresses that. There will be a process of learning. With your glorified body and your mind, there will be no need for spiritual gifts of knowledge and prophecy. But there will be knowledge that's acquired in a fullness of knowledge in the eternal state. Get that? You won't need the Holy Spirit carrying you along and making sure you can understand it and activating that gifts of knowledge and prophecy. You'll be able to do that on your own, and you will be doing that on your own. And I just want to take a footnote, because we've got 10 minutes. Just take a footnote and say this by way of, just by way of knowledge. And I think it's important, because as you talk to people about this, I think they get a, a misperception of this passage. I think it would be a mistake to assume that the eternal state is a place that when you arrive, you'll know everything. That is not what the passage is saying. The word above indicates a process that you'll be involved in. But to know everything would be to be God. And we are not He. 
God is the only one who understands everything, who alone has all knowledge. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 5 kind of primes this pump a little bit, perhaps of what we're talking about when we think about the eternal state and this participation in this fullness of knowledge that you'll be able to participate in. Ephesians 2, 5 says this, Even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. Verse 6, And raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I catch verse 7, and catch the, the nuances that are here. So that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Did you catch it? In the ages to come, there's going to be a process of epignosco, of just the riches of his grace and his kindness. There's going to be experiential teaching and learning and growing in the knowledge just of his riches and grace and kindness towards Christ Jesus. And I, I personally think that that will supersede all other knowledge that we're going to be gaining. Christ bridging the gap from heaven to earth for us and becoming man will be the knowledge that is going to be over everything, the marvelous stuff we'll always look into and get to know more about. We can't grasp all of that, can we? Can you grasp the incarnation? And, I mean, many of you have studied it for years. Do you have a firm grasp on it? How is it possible that the uncreated one became the creature? It's just marvelous. And, and I think that's the whole point of Ephesians 2, that that marvelous riches in Christ is part of that epignosco that's going to go on, that knowledge with your glorified body and mind. You're going to be able to participate in that full knowledge. So catch this. You were made to know the ways of God and enjoy Him forever. And in the eternal state, you will get a fuller and fuller knowledge of those ways. And they'll be uninhibited by a mirror and the incompleteness and the temporary nature and your own sinfulness, uninhibited by any of those things. God is the creator, and we will never know all he knows. So it's not possible to say we're going to get there, we're going to know everything. And I believe this, beloved, think about this. I believe that 10,000 years after you arrive in the eternal state, you will know more fully than you will know when you arrive. I don't think there's any way that you can deny that. The, 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 the power to absorb it will be increased a glorified body and mind will be there open to absorb those things and process them. And it's going to grow continually throughout all eternity. But at any, catch this, at any spot in eternity, we will no, be no closer to exhausting the riches of his knowledge and his person than we were when we started. That's the difference between the creator and the creature, Okay. And gradual, catch this, gradual familiarity with him will not decrease our worship of him. The more you know him, that's not going to change how you worship. It's not going to make it less. You're going to be like, like kind of like maybe you sat sometimes on Sunday, you're like, man, I sing this song so many times, and you're not thinking about the words anymore. You're just kind of, oh, I know this. It won't ever be that way. Beloved, he is as worthy of our praise now as he will be 10,000 years from your first day and you'll be able to worship him new every moment because you'll know more about his worthiness than you knew before. And certainly more than you know now, see. God has revealed mysteries to us through the word. And that word mystery, you know, we, we understand it was something that was hidden that's now revealed, okay? So he's revealed mysteries to us through his word. Here's a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. I read that last uh, yesterday because we had a funeral. That was a mystery. 
that we won't all sleep, but we'll all be changed. But now the Lord's made it clear. Some people will get to go without dying. So something that was hidden now revealed. But mysteries that have been revealed, I'm sure, pale in comparison to the ones that still get to be revealed when you're in the eternal state. And part of the joy of heaven, no doubt, will be the fullness of knowledge that we will participate in, that, and that participation will never end. And if you think about it, it doesn't seem logical at all to think that we'll automatically know everything, even without the obvious verb tenses here that prove that we won't. In heaven, all knowledge can't be equal, right? I mean, just, just think about that, okay? I mean, apart from the infinite knowledge of the Father, what about the angels that have been with the Lord since before the creation of the universe? They certainly know more about him than you, don't they? And they'll always know more about him than you will because you'll never be able to close the gap. They continue to learn the ways of God even now and will learn them and begin to learn the ways of God. I mean, think about this. Seraphim have knowledge of God that cherubim don't have, right? And Michael has knowledge of God that Gabriel obviously doesn't have. And Gabriel got some news to take somewhere that other angels wouldn't have, correct? And we'll always have knowledge that the angels long to look into. You will, and I will, because you were redeemed. So there's knowledge that you have that you're going to grow in that angels are behind you in. They'll never catch up to that because they weren't redeemed. So the knowledge of God that bridged the gap of our sin and his righteousness by sending his son to be one of us, that knowledge is a knowledge that will overshadow all knowledge. That's going to be a marvelous thing to think about and to praise the Lord about. But even as we grow in fullness of knowledge, we're only going to have a fraction of the infinite amount of knowledge that belongs to God. And a fraction of an infinite amount of knowledge is still infinitely small by comparison. Okay? So when you think about going to heaven, don't think, you know, I don't think it was ever, ever indicated or that we should possibly imagine that we're going to be sitting around with all knowledge somewhere where we're just kind of bored to death. How could we possibly, you know, just kind of sit around while we know everything and so what are we going to do now? And I mean, the marvelous nature of being able to, to get to know each other and to know the Father and to know the mysteries of the Father and of creation and of, of, uh, of redemption and all the things that are all part that he still hasn't even revealed. There's mysteries, no doubt. We don't know anything about in the scriptures that the Lord will reveal to us when we get to heaven and we'll get all of eternity to delve into all of that stuff, see? Isn't that marvelous? A place where forever we can come to a fullness of knowledge that continues to expand. And this will increase our ability to worship the one who is worthy. Chapter comes to an end with this statement, verse 13. That was just all for free. That was just thrown out to help us kind of grasp this. Verse 13. But now faith, hope, love abide these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul finishes speaking about the future state, and he says this. But now, noonie. So we're talking about the future state. He's got us all involved in this. Uh, fullness of knowledge that's going to occur in the future, and then he brings us all back to the reality. He just says, okay, talked about that. That's going to be marvelous. Come right back now. But now, that's a, a kind of a time stamp, if you will. The here and now, the present, which he brings the church back to what's going on right now. And Paul links these three, perhaps, because they are the utmost importance, uh, you know, over and apart from the things the church thought were so important. Paul just brings them back, and he says these three. Paul uses these three together in First Thessalonians 1, 2. He says this. He says, um, 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of God the Father. He doesn't say, he doesn't say this. He doesn't say bearing in mind your tongue speaking and prophesying and your healing, does it? Colossians chapter 1, verse 3. Says this, he says, uh, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus. There it is, and the love which you have for all the saints. Verse 5, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel. So it's not unusual for Paul to express these this way. They're the most important things. Uh, he uses a sure hope of heaven, which energizes their faith and their love for one another. The fact that we'll stand before the Father, I think, is the motivation, uh, that hope of heaven to do the things we're supposed to be doing. Very uh, a wonderful reminder to us, of course. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10. I'm just hitting the highlights. There's a bunch of places where this is located. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown uh, towards his name and having ministered in all, ministering, ministered and, and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope till the end. So here, the labor of ministry motivated by the love, uh, energizes the hope and faith. You know, we see this often linked in the New Testament. Faith, hope, love make the short list for Paul. Faith will become sight, hope will be realized, and love endures and never fails. Love is the last word. It occupies the supreme place. And in the face of the regard of the Christians that they had for one another, the spectacular that the Corinthians wanted to, to elevate some gift that they had and that was the most important thing that's all in the face of all of that see and they disregarded they, uh, each other and the way they treated each other during the, the Lord's Supper and all that kind of stuff Paul just kind of brings it back I know you think these other things are important I know you think you know that you should be doing this and this activity is great and you think the church really needs this and I'm just telling you faith hope and love these three abide and the greatest of these is love the really important things aren't tongues and the like, but faith and hope and love. And there is nothing greater than love. So if you're going to major on something, major on something that lasts forever. Amen? Lord, we thank you today for the time to be in your word. We're grateful for how clear it is. We thank you for the joy that it is to look at these future things. And we resonate with with the hope that Paul talked about, faith, hope, and love, these three abide, and then we see that uh, the hope we have in our Lord Jesus in 1 Thessalonians, the hope laid up for us in heaven, the hope, a full assurance of hope until the end from Hebrews. Lord, we understand those things. They are the things that motivate us. Love is the great foundation on which we do the work, and faith and hope are those things which uh, motivate us to do those works of love. We understand that you give your commands to us and they are for us and you've given us your Holy Spirit to help us. And so Lord, as we started with today, we end with, I pray that uh, we'll take these things seriously. It's not enough to just say, well, that was, uh, that was nice or that was complex, but I think I got the, the gist of it. I think we understand clearly what you're saying. I don't think we can turn away and say, okay, well, I'm just going to keep doing what I'm doing and not take a close evaluation of our life. And as David prayed, Lord, reveal to us our secret sin, those things that are 
uh, in us that really inhibit our growth and inhibit the growth of the church, inhibit the growth of our ministry, cause us really to be ineffective and laying up things that are not gold, silver, and costly stone on that foundation of Christ. And so our desire as a church, of course, and this is really under the radar because we, this is not, it's not, nobody's going to trumpet this. It isn't going to be clear. It's not going to be on a, on a placard out uh, in the foyer or on the sign, but it'll be evident nonetheless that the love and all those activities that love participates in and does, which indicate that it really is love, those things will be the most important things we chase after. And so, Father, I pray that that is our prayer, that together as believers we're praying this together for everyone needs this evaluation, including the one in the pulpit and anyone else. And so, Father, we thank you for the opportunity to do things better. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, still more, do it still more than we did before. We understand what we're supposed to do. Help us to do it better and more clearly. And we already know that the blessing of those things is abundant both in the life of the church and in personal walk with you. So we pray this all in the name of your son, Jesus, whom we thank you for, whom we long to see and to be found faithful. We pray this in his name. All God's people said, amen.